While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. The, the thing about writing on the internet is that nothing is nothing is out of bounds like you will if you choose to criticize something you will invariably find a a clutch of people who are <laughs> who have dedicated their lives to defending that thing that seems like, yeah that seems about right like today i made an offhand reference to something called the apple newton in an article which for those of you who weren't alive like a million years ago (laughs) it was this like this platform of apples it was like a pda like a palm pilot or something but you're supposed to be able to write into it and then it would recognize your handwriting and turn it into typed text and it didn't work super well and it got killed in like 1998 and i insulted it today in 2014 mm-hmm. by calling it ill-fated which i mean i think anything that works the way it worked and got discontinued that long ago i think you know fits the definition <laughs> yeah that seems about right and i got like as many tweets about that as i've gotten about anything in recent memory like i got retweeted by somebody who runs like a list serve of people dedicated to this old technology people were sending me like pictures of their desks and they have these things sitting on them and they're still using them like every day it's it's crazy andrew these are people who run listservs (laughs) (laughs) like not to disparage what anyone's jam is but you have to understand that the people into weirdo old technology that isn't useful anymore are the same people who actually sign up for MailChimp when people tell them to. Don't say it isn't useful anymore because you will bring the Internet's wrath down oh, upon you. Did I, you know that this was the last useful piece of technology that anybody made? It was all downhill from there. That's not true. I figured out when it peaked. Oh, <laughs> it was in no. 1998 with a stupid, crabby tablet. You should start insulting like 80s comedy shows and see if like people are like well different strokes is the last show that was ever funny and ever meant anything like just yeah. see but I you mean, like that about, show you wouldn't race. do that it was about childhood it was yeah. about a lot of stuff yeah you wouldn't insult different strokes no well i i could as like a social <laughs> experiment i guess All right. Well, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And uh, we're going to talk about books now. We're not going to talk about the internet. If we talk about the internet, that'll be my mistake. Yeah, I have a very hot and cold relationship with the internet. (laughs) Well, hot in as much as it pays your bills and cold in as much as it... (laughs) Yes, it's it's hot in in the sense that it heats my home, which it also pays for. And cold in the sense that the internet can be kind of a cold fish, like collectively. Sometimes. Are you good?
I'm not good. <laughs> I don't know what a cold fish means. A cold fish, you know, if you're like, if you go and see a guy and and he's like not a good conversationalist and maybe he has clammy hands. I don't know. I don't think clammy hands is like a part of it, but I associate that with being. Oh, do you mean fish. like a like a limp handshake? You mean I, like yeah, a guy who doesn't get a good handshake? Just going. somebody who leaves you cold. Have you ever given a bad handshake and wanted to take the last five seconds of your life back? <laughs> I did. I have given weird hugs where like <laughs> somebody tried to give me a handshake and then they went for the hug and I wasn't expecting it. And like, I'm not a bad hugger. Like I'm pretty okay at it, but it just caught me off guard. This, this hug from this person I've met like one other time. Yeah. I would say you need knowing you, you need to be ready for a hug. I can and hug like, most I, of the time. I kind of want him to try it again so I can show him that that's, that's not the best I can do. Like I can, I can bring more to the table. But then that, then you're that guy who's asking for hug mulligans. <laughs> Hulligans. Everybody Hugligans. should get just three cars that they carry around with themselves. And, and they just can, say mulligan on them? Yeah, just a mulligan with like, do you, there's that one Monopoly card of like Uncle Pennybags and that lady hugging. It should have that on it. It's just okay. a mulligan. Okay. And that's the hug mulligan card. Yeah, when I give that bad handshake, oh man, when someone grabs my fingers before I'm ready for the handshake, and then it feels like I never wanted to handshake them in the first place, <laughs> which is not true. <laughs> oh man. So this is about books. I mean, we we try to get started and then we got off track again. But um yeah, every week one of us reads a book or a play or a short story or something and then explains it to the other one. And we have we have a really great time, and you're gonna have a good time, right? <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> sure, don't oversell Just... it. <laughs> Greg, what did you read this week? I read The Misanthrope by Moliere. All right, what's the deal with this thing? Well, it, it is a French comedy of manners from the 17th century. What's a comedy of manners? Oh, I didn't look up that exact definition because I didn't plan for you to oh god i just want to know what a comedy of manners is because it, it does sound like it's supposed to be a comedy about like people who have bad manners or something it satirizes all right this is a quote from wikipedia which i hate doing but it is it satirizes the manners and affectations of a social class or of multiple classes often represented by stereotypical stock characters so this sounds like it's kind of like an Oscar Wilde thing in that it takes aim at a particular social class and then deconstructs it using stereotypes. Yes, not only a particular social class, but uh, especially in the instance of this play, a particular type of behavior. Going back to uh, what did you what the play you just said, importance of being earnest. Um, we talked about that being a lot about marriage right and married people yes and um, that's a that's a theme that's pretty common in oscar wilde because he was partial to other men yes and I'm, so any stipulations from society that he would get married kind of didn't sit well with him because it was not to his taste <laughs> i think yes um so the misanthrope is uh primarily about whether or not we are honest with each other, to put it simply. 
Um, it is about the many lies that we tell each other on a day-to-day basis and whether or not we should. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and uh, that automatically kind of hooks me because I think everybody, whether it's with coworkers or friends or whatever, they you know everybody tells a million little tiny lies through the you know through the course of their lives <laughs> like whether it's somebody asks how you are and you say you're fine when you're not like how, how big are the lies that we're talking about here um they're not very big but the implications of that behavior are very big for the lead character uh but we we'll get in the book in just a second i want to make sure we okay. talk about moliere before right. we move on from him um so his real name was jean baptiste pocalet I think that's right. Pocklin. My okay. French. I got a three pa- on the Pocklin. AP. Pocklin. Pa- I got the. I got a three on the AP test, which was enough for me to never take French again. <laughs> so a three probably, on the AP. A three on the AP is like, eh. It's the numerical equivalent of. It's eh. like you did enough to just leave us alone. The person grading the test was like, "Your French is good enough, but also so bad that we want you to leave us alone." You'll probably get by in life, but like. Yeah, <laughs> eh, you're going to make your college French teacher upset, so just leave it alone. Um, <laughs> so the reason he went by Moliere is he was born to a well-to-do family, um, which obviously afforded him the opportunity in 17th century France to take up an interest in theater, even though I know he studied law for a little bit. <clears throat> but he decided to break out on his own and you know join slash form a theater troupe, so he adopted the stage name Moliere because he was an actor as well as a playwright. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as not to the the belief is so as not to um, dishonor his father, uh, because upon forming the theater troupe, it promptly went bankrupt. <laughs> much uh, like a modern theater troupe, <laughs> much like uh, much like many artistic endeavors, it had its share of problems. So when uh, when in time was this? Did you mention that this is in the seventeenth century? Uh, okay. He abandoned his social class in 1643 and went off to uh, join join the theater, you know. Um, and he ended up leaving France for a little while, leaving Paris, um, and then kind of came back with another group as well as uh, a bunch of Italian actors led by, what is his name, Tiberio Fiorillo which is another Commedia dell'arte company. Uh, and one of the things that is important to know about Moliere's work in general, though is it's not as important to this play specifically, is that he did borrow from the stock characters of uh, Commedia dell'arte, which is an Italian uh, theater form. Can you just give me a couple examples of those stock characters? It's been a while since undergrad theater class have you heard of pantalone also mr big pants okay mr big pants okay you tell me what the types are and i'm gonna guess what they are and i'm gonna guess that mr big pants is a guy who is too big for his britches not true he is a wealthy miserly old man sort of like a mr burns okay all right then you have Thank you for an, putting it in terms of yeah. Then you have an il dottore. What do you think he is? What is the English translation of that? I don't you tell me what does it sound like? Il dottore just sounds like Il dottore. The nope, dottore. I got, I, I got nothing. He's a doctor. Okay. Oh, a doctor. 
He's of kind of a he's kind of a know it all professor who's actually not very like he's not world wise. He's maybe like kind of a nerd. Okay, and I'm actually I'm picking up like a Gilligan's Island vibe. Like we've yes, got Mr. Howell, right. we've got the professor. <laughs> You've got um Il Capitano, who I know also is like uh has been called Bragad Braggadocio, or is that just a quality I don't remember? What kind of guy do you think he is? It sounds like a loudmouth. Kind of. He's like a Gaston. Okay. Except uh, imagine that none of the things that Gaston could do were real. And mm-hmm. he's even, he's like kind of a, sometimes the big thing, the the big comic payoff of Il Capitano is that he didn't actually do any of the things that he is boastful okay. of. Sounds like and, the skipper a little bit. Yep. I'm going to continue with this Gilligan's Island Yep. Thing. Then there's Arlequino or Harlequin. Okay. Who do you think that is? Um, he sounds like kind of the doofus, uh, the, the Gilligan of the of the group, if you will. <laughs> sort of. Usually, Arlequinos aren't the dumbest character. Um, they are the like tricky servant, and they're okay. Quite often, um, more more become... clever than than goofy. Yes, they saying. they end up playing uh like a lead, uh, in a lot of comedies of this era because they can kind of play both sides between the old people or the this is the italian term the ilvecci and the <laughs> inamorati which are the lovers so you have very often there are these like two uh you know a guy and a girl who are young and they want to be together but there's an old guy keeping them apart so they enlist arlecchino to help them out that's a very common uh plot device and that's basically most of them. There's there's a couple different variations on them, and you know the French version of Arlequino became Harlequin. And if you remember your animated Batman series, you'll remember Harley Quinn. Yes, of course, right? I remember Harley Quinn. And that that <laughs> outfit is very much derived from <clears throat> that that goes back centuries. That type of patterning for a clown. Yeah. Um. So there's and then there's all sorts of like specific. Um, versions of those characters but those characters were kind of put together so that real quick on the street in a blender you could kind of throw up a, a story just based out of those characters and people well and people them. would probably be familiar with those tropes and then know what to expect from those characters right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this play is a little less reliant on those um, oh, oh I keep wanting to jump to the play and forget forget, uh, forget Moliere um, was there anything in, in his kind of bio that you found i know you really latched onto a painting of his mustache. i mean i'm looking there's it's not it's not just of his mustache it's like him in a mustache with a christmas wreath on his head and a magic wand yeah and he's wearing like a, a roman kind of sure very imperial looking garb i guess yeah i don't know what to tell you that's uh sure and um, I'm assuming that he like chose to have himself represented in this way. This was not just like medieval paparazzi following him around with an <laughs> easel and a brush. <laughs> not just some dude in a beret like, chasing yeah, him down the street holding like a canvas. Sn- sneaking brush strokes in the bushes or something. Who is that hiding behind the baguettes? <laughs> it is Pierre the paparazzi. Um, no, I don't. I imagine he wanted to be represented as an artiste. <laughs> sure. Uh, um, I guess, I mean, the stuff I'm kind of wondering about is maybe stuff that I don't know if you if you know to tell me. But so um, he is active. He was born in 1622, died in 1673. 
um, mm-hmm. was active in like in France and in Italy. And this is like this is really close to Shakespeare, who is like the this big is just post Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare, he looms yeah. over everything. And so I'm just I'm wondering to what extent different playwrights in these countries are like exchanging ideas or like influencing each other and I, i'm not i don't know if you can speak to that or not but um, it's kind of the big the big question i'm interested in the biggest thing to note that right now is uh i want to say i don't know my british history as well as i would like but we are dealing with the english revolution um in the 17th century cromwell and whatnot in which theater was outlawed. Oops. So it, England kind of takes a back seat to France and Italy uh, in this period of time. Like culturally, I mean? Well, at least in regards to theater anyway. Also. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I, don't, I can't speak to other parts. Um, and, when, and when theater comes back uh, in the late t- 17th century and in the 18th century, you have playwrights who are doing similar comedies of manners um, and they're rewriting some Shakespeare plays and they're rediscovering Shakespeare um, in a different theater environment. Uh, so it's, I think, there are definite stock characters that you can kind of see in this commedia tra- tradition that exist in some of Shakespeare's later plays and some of his comedies. Um, Two Gentlemen of Verona, I want to think, has a lot of commedia elements in it. Uh, and you can certainly do treatments of many of his comedies with those kind of stock characters involved because he was also writing for a particular group of actors in which case well, and I, i'm i'm sure that moliere and shakespeare were drawing from some of the same traditions so even if moliere wasn't influenced by shakespeare directly they they probably had some common things that they paid attention to when they were when they were doing their work. So. Yeah, the thing about Moliere's work in general is that it is written in rhyming couplet almost entirely, which in French isn't as big of a deal because words don't get the same stresses that English words do. Explain to me what that means. Does it just mean that like I don't know that it's easier to make more things rhyme with more other things or what? No, I think it's almost that it doesn't sound to your ear as rhymy, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, okay. So it's it's not as like nursery rhymy as English rhyme. Can yes, be. and and the best translations of Moliere and and other French playwrights that do this, uh Corneille is another one who's a a little earlier than Moliere, uh Pierre Corneille. Um they it the best translations of them kind of lean into that in a way that is very uh, fun and playful, and I think that's probably their intended uh, effect anyway. Um, but I I don't. Th- it's easier to just kind of like run through the line break in French than it is in English, if that okay. makes sense. No, I get it. Um, and so one real, we've gone a really long time before actually talking about this play. That's um, fine. No, I mean with a guy this. I mean, this studied and with, you know, this prolific, I think it's it's worth it. I just want to share a little tidbit about Moliere's death real quick um, before we move on to the play. Sure. So his last play was called The Imaginary Invalid, which he wrote as a <laughs> a ballet comedie, I believe it's called, where he had, he had contracted 
the court musician Lily to write a bunch of songs, and there was dance, and it was this whole big thing. And he was playing this character in it himself, and he had pulmonary tuberculosis at the time. Yikes, okay. Um, and he was pretty old at this point. I think he was in his 60s. Um, Are we talking about Moliere? Yeah. Because he died when he was 51. Oh, so. so then he's in his 50s. Oops. So either he was in his 50s or he was a ghost. He might have been a ghost. Um, <laughs> so he's in the play and he like, there's a part where, and this character is a hypochondriac and this character keeps like, you know, feigning illness. And then during one performance of it, he kind of goes down, <laughs> like covered, coughing and hemorrhaging. Um and then, like, a day or two later, he passed away. Like, he insisted okay. on getting up and completing the performance and then collapsed afterwards. I was, was going to say, like, a real pro would have been able to to work that in and, and just improv it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, he wasn't allowed to be buried in the sacred ground of a cemetery, um, but his widow asked the king if he could permit like a normal funeral and he was buried in the part of the cemetery where they put unbaptized infants <laughs> and he wasn't allowed to be buried there cause he was an actor. <laughs> Just saying. I'm, I mean in, I'm pretty sure that's where I'm going to put you. Yep. When I bury you. Wait, which... why are you buried? <laughs> it's just invariably that's going to be the way it is. That sounded like a threat. <laughs> It's not a threat. It's just a prediction. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Yeah. I can take it. So let's talk about this play, I guess. All right. So hit me. What is What does the name mean, I guess? The misanthrope. Well, the titular misanthrope is a man named Alceste. And I kind of just want to read uh, the character list to you because I think it's telling of how this play is going to go. All right. So it says, Alceste, in love with Celibet. And then his friend... Philant, it's Alcest's friend. And then Orant, in love with Selimen. Then Selimen, Alcest's beloved. Eliant, Selimen's cousin. Arsinoe, a friend of Selimen's. These two guys who are Marquesses, and then some servants. Uh, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there is one character around which most of this play <laughs> revolves. Well, the scene throughout is in Selimen's house. So we're just chilling at her house. And this is part of the French salon culture of the time, um, which is where you sit around someone's house and like read poems and talk about stuff. That sounds like the only thing that any rich people did was just sit around. Well, they didn't have quizzo. Enjoy being rich. They didn't have quizzo. (laughs) They didn't have quizzo. They didn't have scandal. They didn't have football. Okay. I pretty much covered I, well, all the demographics, it. right? They covered... Starcraft? Is that the so this last was, one? So this I'm was the say? Netflix of the day. It was just sitting around and reading poetry. <laughs> yes. And the Oh big... no, you don't you don't have that you don't have that one memorized. You're just gonna have to go to the library and get it. <laughs> and the big issue with salon culture at the time that Moliere is kind of satirizing here in his comedy of manners, Andrew, is <laughs> Uh, something called politesse, which I wanted to find a good definition of on Wikipedia, but of course Wikipedia just sent me to a boat named politesse. So <laughs> screw that. Do you know anything about the boat? Is there anything? No, interesting shut about up. It? it was a United States ship. Um, it's basically like <laughs> when you're in front of someone, you're you 
you don't be mean to them. You tell white lies to their face. Right. Sure. But when they leave, like maybe you say some nasty stuff when they leave. Or if you think they're kind of doofy, like you might say it to someone. So it's like a gossipy, backbitey kind of yes. society. Pretty yes, much. yes, yes. Okay. Um, I want to find <clears throat> a good quote because Alceste, the misanthrope, is he he finds all of this abhorrent. Here's a quote for you. I despise the frenzied operations of all these barterers of protestations, these lavishers of meaningless embraces, these utterers of obliging commonplaces who court and flatter everyone on earth and praise the fool no less than the man of worth. So he's pretty adamant that we need to stop kind of being nice to people we don't like because it it diminishes all the times that we are nice to people we do like, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Uh, and his friend Philant, who I suppose could be played by kind of like an Arlecchino character, but he doesn't need to be because he's not a servant. He's just kind of like, why, why do you, why does this bother you so much? Can't people just be nice to each other? Like, can't that just be a thing? And then the big issue is that Alceste, despite uh, his best efforts not to be, is in love with a woman named Selimen, who is really good at the be nice to your face and flatter you. And then when you leave kind of totally dish on you, Mm -hmm. like that's her bag. Um, There's a scene later in the play where the Marquesses come over and everyone's over at her house. And it's like a a pretty good uh, satirization of the salon culture where they kind of just bring up different people that they know. And she rags on all of them. Like, and Alceste is there kind of wondering why anyone would waste their time doing this and and how could they could do this to a person uh so that's the that's the conceit of the play that's <laughs> i don't know what else to tell you it all it all sounds very small i guess i i guess i mean the the words themselves kind of try to make it feel bigger i guess i'm going to try and find you a quote um like alcest kind of speaks largely about this issue you know um i choose sir to be chosen and in fine the friend of mankind is no friend of mine like this Mm -hmm. for him this is not a this is a pretty big issue and he doesn't understand why people don't feel similarly so Um, the friend of mankind is no friend of mine basically means somebody who acts like everybody's friend is somebody who i don't want to know yes that's the thrust of and it. the the problem that Alcest keeps running into is that people respect him some some people respect him for his like virtue of always kind of be being blunt with people mm-hmm. and there's this scene where this guy Orant runs in and he's also a suitor for Selimen and he's like hey i wrote this great sonnet Could, can i read it to you and already you can tell that Alcest is like no you really shouldn't you really shouldn't read it to me please <laughs> and over the course of the scene, uh, Orant kind of reads this crappy sonnet to him, and uh, Alceste has to kind of navigate telling him that it's bad, because he can't not. You, There's that really wonderful irony for the reader, for the audience, where you know the bad situation's gonna going to come, because I was actually reading a little bit about the play, and the phrase comic flaw came up, because like, you've heard of a tragic flaw, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... Uh, who am I thinking of? What's his I name? Know, who are you thinking? Of? Oedipus. <laughs> Oedipus has a tragic flaw. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, 
um, you might even say Odysseus sometimes has a tragic flaw, like hubris or whatever it is. It's a mm-hmm. that's a classic ha- tragic flaw. Um, or Achilles and he, that heel that he's got. That's, that's pretty tragic. <laughs> the heel is pretty pretty messed up. Why do you let that happen? <laughs> um, but Alceste's comic flaw is his truth telling, his his um, kind of belief in the nobleness of truth above all it sounds like he's he's almost trying to walk this line between being him which is telling the truth and fitting in in this dumb society where he has to kind of grin and bear it with everybody who well and he hates grinning and bearing it he can't stand it so he's got this problem where he's in love that he kind of he can never really articulate why he's in love with this girl and that's part of his problem it's just kind of taken for granted for dramatic effect you know um, but he, I, I really like that in the scene with Orant, he tries to get out of criticizing Orant directly by saying, um, to be told, uh, what do he say? But once to one whose name I shall not mention, I said regarding some verse of his invention that gentlemen should rigorously control that itch to write, which often inflicts the soul. <laughs> And he kind of keeps this like fake terrible lie up for like three or four pages. Where he's like, <laughs> "Well, I told this guy once that he was pretty bad," and Orant keeps going, "Well, do you, are you talking about me?" And he's like, "No, no, 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 uh, no." <laughs> I mean, it's I just said that this guy was writing bad poetry. <laughs> Uh, so so the, he's surrounded by people who are incapable of taking the hint. It sounds like. <laughs> well, and they live in a society where people should never have to. It's like you always right. tell you always tell people what they want to hear. Like, and and Philant's kind of like, why is why would that be such a bad thing? You know. Um, and the main issue for Alceste as like a as like a protagonist is that he isn't particularly sympathetic because you can respect his argument, but he's kind of an egotist about... Yeah, and he sounds like he's a jerk, too. (laughs) Well, yeah, and when he's criticizing Iran about the sonnet, you also know that that poem is written for the girl that Alceste loves. So there's Mm -hmm. like an element of competition there. Um, But the flip side is that Selimen tells everyone what they want to hear. So that means when she's in a room with a bunch of people and... Like she's hanging out with the Marquesses and Cleon's not in the room. Well, she she's gonna dish on Cleon. I'm gonna try and find the quote where she makes fun of Cleon because I think it's funny. Um, she says his co- they say uh, what about young Cleon? His house they say is full of the best society night and day. And then Solomon dishes on him. She says his cook has made him popular. Not he. It's Cleon's <laughs> table that people come to see. Uh, they say he gives a splendid dinner. Uh, you must admit, but must he serve himself along with it? <laughs> For my taste, Jeez. he's a most insipid dish whose presence sours the wine and spoils the fish. <laughs> oh my God, that's people are really throwing some shade at him. It sounds I know. like. <laughs> well, she okay. Told... So it it seems like when in the play do, do people get caught in these white lies? Like, is there any is there any sort of um, confrontation that that surrounds somebody saying something to one person and then getting caught so you know, by that person yeah, later. Or? the conflict comes from so Arant uh, actually takes Alceste to court <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of for libel I guess I don't know um, 
and Alceste ends up not contesting it because he's like, yeah, people should know that I'm just going to tell the, just drop truth bombs left and right. That's just my, that's just my jam. <laughs> um, and the problem with Selamen is she's got all of these suitors. She's kind of Penelopeing it up right now. And she has sworn love to Alceste. Um, but then, uh, this woman, Arsinoe, comes up and says, actually, I've kind of discovered that she's not being true to you. And Alcest is like, oh, God, I'll find out about that. Apparently, she wrote the same, like, all of these similar love notes to, like, four or five different guys in the play, basically telling them all what they wanted to hear. So she is the exact opposite of him and uh, ruins everything just as Alceste has kind of ruined all of his relationships with people <laughs> by telling the truth, she has ruined all of her relationships with people by telling them exactly what they want to hear. Does she mean it with anybody, or do you know, or is that the, the she, point? She, she, I don't know. She claims to mean it for <laughs> Alceste, but, but I don't, you can't trust anything she says. Yeah, exactly. Um, there is a there. But is you a, say that to all the guys. There is a scene which I think is. I have a lot of sympathy for her up until that that letter scene happens because Alceste is kind of such a jerk and Orant's kind of a doofus too, the, the Sonic guy. And they get in the scene where they deliver this like ultimatum to her where they're like, tell us who you pick. Pick between the two of us. And Alceste keeps going, if you don't answer, I know that that means you don't choose me. <laughs> just, just terrible. Uh, and then it finally comes out that she wrote all these letters and, and no one's happy with her. This is um, a really it's been a while, I think, since we've read something this old. Yes. And I think a conversation that we come back to all the time is that a lot of these works or like the best ones touch upon stuff mm-hmm. that still feels really modern. Like I I really respect people who shoot straight and I would like to be a person who shot straight. But uh-huh. I think more often I'm a person who tells people what they want to hear. I agree with and you I bet, completely. And I bet that's pretty common. You I agree with that you I do that or do you? you no, that I, do that, that I, oh, excuse me. Uh, I agree Jeez. that I do that very often Jeez. as well. You I have a good. Tell me what I want to hear. Yayo, I have a <laughs> good friend in town who is, uh, a, he is a straight shooter to a fault. <laughs> and he knows it. Uh, and it's. I think it's garnered him a lot of respect over time, but I'm sure there are like brief moments where he would sacrifice some of that respect <laughs> for a, a mulligan on whatever that situation was, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like there is, I'm not going to name any names and I'm going to try and use gender neutral okay. pronouns so as to not get this person into trouble. But yeah, there, there's one person I know who they have this friend who they really like that it's like their best friend. But then there's this other third person who they hang out with sometimes who they've like known for a really long time, but they don't get along with that well. And they just, the, even though the two of them who are closest don't like mutually don't care that much for this third person, oh, no. they still will hang out. And like in, in private, the, the, you know, the first person will complain about having to hang out with this third person, but still will not take the steps necessary to like sever that relationship, even though, you know, in their day to day life is not going to make any difference at all. (laughs) Like whether this person still likes them or not. So, yeah. And, and the other, one of the other very modern things 
that that kind of crops up in this play. There's this character, Eliant, who I think is Selimen's cousin. Uh, and Eliant and Arsinoe are these women who really like Alceste and his truth-telling for their own reasons. She finds it very romantic and kind of heroic, Eliant does. Mm-hmm. Um, and she gives this speech kind of in the in the middle of the play when uh, Alceste has this big outburst after Selimen dishes on everyone. He's, and he's like, why could you, why do you do this? Why do, why do women do this? Uh, and Eliant says that love as a rule affects men otherwise and lovers rarely love to criticize they see their lady as a charming blur and find all things commendable in her uh, and then she gives this great list of like things that thing like things to praise about different types of people so i just kind of want to go down it because i think it's kind of great okay um, hit me the pale-faced ladies lily white perforce the swarthy ones a sweet brunette of course of course. The spindly lady has a slender grace. <laughs> the fat one has a most majestic pace. <laughs> I got more. Okay, no, just keep going. I'm just yeah. the the plain one with her dress in disarray, they classify as beauté negligé. <laughs> the hulking ones a goddess in their eyes, the dwarf a concentrate of paradise. <laughs> The haughty lady has a noble mind, the mean one's witty and the dull one's kind. The chatterbox has liveliness and verve, the mute one has a virtuous reserve. So lovers manage in their passion's cause to love their ladies even for their flaws. Man, that is the longest list That's pretty good. of like consecutive backhanded compliments that I think I have ever heard. But but Elion's not not like giving them as such right she's sure she is kind of trying to distill uh what i learned in psych 101 as the halo effect right (laughs) where because you love someone you or because you are attracted to someone or, or for whatever reason um you perceive them more positively than others might yes yeah yeah um, and that that's something that I that I think is very true and modern of a play that's you know pushing four hundred years old. <laughs> so how do you think this play ends, Andrew? I think it ends with a lot of people being really sad and upset with each other. <laughs> so a bunch of people storm out of Selimen's house, and we're left with Eliant, uh, who loves Alceste, mm-hmm. uh, Philant, who has told Eliant or Eliant that he would marry her if he could, and Alceste and Selimin. What do you think is going to go down? I don't know. Just just tell me. The suspense is really... It's, it's killing really you, I know. Yeah. Uh, so Selimin and Alceste are basically like, screw you. <laughs> I'm outie. Uh, Selimin pieces. Alceste swears that he is going to go find a place that is, quote, unpeopled, because he... <laughs> Is so disgusted with the human race and all of its sure. duplicitous nature. Okay. And he leaves, he gives Eliant and Philant uh, his consent to like get wed, whether or not they needed it. Um, and it ends with them being like, great, let's be together and let's go convince him to join us like back in humanity. <laughs> and then the play ends. Okay. All right. I have two questions for you. One sure. about the narrative and one about something else. Great. What is the audience supposed to take away from this? Because it sounds like it is equally dismissive of people who don't 
tell these little utilitarian lies and people who do. I think it's supposed to remind you that you probably do. Probably do what? Tell these lies. Sure. That you probably do exhibit this behavior, get you to laugh at it so that you are so that you don't immediately feel attacked because you know the language is witty and the examples are are entertaining um, and exaggerated probably and exaggerated well. a little bit yeah but to get you to think about the fact that you're doing this in an effort to make you stop and think every once in a while yeah basically yeah. <laughs> um, there's there's some evidence that uh the misanthrope was a little tamer with regard to Moliere's uh, more recent plays, Tartuffe and Don Juan, Tartuffe is a pretty is a little more scathing with regards to uh, social class and and treatment of fathers on daughters and and the priorities of the rich. You know, uh, yeah. There's that when you're trying to say something big about society, you're trying to affect change. I, I, it's it's frustrating because you want it to change all at once, but in the long run, you're probably going to have more steps. I mean, more, um, more success with baby steps. Yes, 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 yes. And so it's probably tempting to just totally blast these people who are doing this, but probably more useful to, to kind of coddle them a little bit. Well, and almost trick them into it, I guess. Yeah. And of course the people who are, um, able to afford this, this is, this is a little different from, as I understand, a little different, from Shakespeare's time where you had the quote-unquote groundlings coming in for like a penny and and standing on the floor. Um, Mm -hmm. These were done in theaters, I understand, or at least in people's homes or or something like that. Um, And so the bulk of the people seeing the play were the people it was critiquing, you know, um, the, the, the social class that it was critiquing. But I think I think this play does not kind of deal with money in any explicit way, right? Which I think so is the, kind of playing it safe. Would this have been the case for all of Moliere's stuff? Would he always have been putting shows on for this richer, more affluent set of people, or would he have been, you know, giving them the the you know the I don't I don't even know what word I want to say like like taking it easier on them and then delivering something more scathing to you know the general populace. I don't know that I can answer that. Okay, I, that's my fine. my gut says that it is uh he did, he would not have had as many opportunities to kind of play to the lowest class. Okay. Sure. That's my gut, but I wish I I I don't know that. And then my other my other big question to kind of close out was about the the writing itself. Like it sounds like the translation takes pains to preserve the rhyming. Yes, which has got to be rough. So, well, and, can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, it's translated by Richard Wilbur, who's actually still alive. He's ninety three years old. Uh, he is a two time Pulitzer winner for poetry, which I did not know. Uh, makes me want to go out and and read some of his his own poems. Um, he's won a n- n- like many awards for his translation work must that that most of which is french um another playwright uh jean racine i've read i've read, read one or two of his racine the translations. name sounds familiar yeah he wrote fedra um among one or two others 
um, Andrew Maki and, and the suitors. Um, but Wilbur was doing the bulk of his translations in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s. He won a bunch of like achievement awards in the late in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, probably because he's 93. Um, and he argues in his foreword that it was necessary to preserve the rhyming verse um, to give you a sense of the musicality of the language because it is written in this heightened farce style that knowing that Moliere went on to kind of create these comedy ballets that incorporated music and, and dance into his pieces, you have to recognize that the poetry is there for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't going to put it into prose. And then he also felt that the rhyming helped create that sense of play while also helping with the sense of argument. I think there's something really satisfying in the kind of alley-oop that a rhyme gives a line, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um I wish I could give you a really good example off the top of my head that I haven't given you already. Um, but there's, there's a couple good ones. Um, oh, so I mean, I think it, I think it comes up in some of the stuff, like when you're reading me the list of backhanded compliments, it's, um, like, you know, each line is, is a thing unto itself, but also you can pair together like contrasting, things so, and and like and it, it becomes more obvious that they're supposed to be paired because of the way that the lines rhyme with each other yeah so here's a good example from the from the sonnet scene when Orant is reading his poem and and Philant and Alcestor saying how terrible it is um Philant keeps praising Orant and he keeps saying how good it is so Philant says what a clever thought how handsomely you phrase it and then Alcestor says to him you know the thing is trash how dare you praise it so you kind of <laughs> You not only with the rhyme do you get to like have that little aside be kind of controlled, but yeah, you're right. It it sets up the ideas that you're contrasting between each other, mm-hmm. which is really useful. Um, there's a a playwright David Ives who uh, wrote Venus and Fur, which recently won a couple of awards and has written some smaller stuff that plenty of people have seen in college. Um, the, the play with the bell shore thing and, and a couple other things. He has kind of created a side career over the past couple of years of translating plays by Moliere and his contemporary Pierre Cornet and a couple other mm-hmm. French writers, basically using rhyming couplets uh, to have a lot of fun linguistically um, and tossing in some modern words when appropriate to kind of keep the audience surprised. Sure. But I think that that's a thing that, it's a device that if you were to make characters that existed in the 21st century use, it would feel really weird. But if you're doing a play that is set in the 17th century and you've said you're adapting it, like you can kind of get away with it. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it, it succeeds for comedic purposes above all else. And I was pleasantly surprised by how funny the Wilbur translation was. I didn't remember it being, didn't remember him having such wit in his translation skills. So yeah, I think uh, I've read Tartuffe and I've read a couple of their Moliere plays. I've read the Miser. Um, There's a couple good translations of the Miser out there. Some of them are rhyming. Some of them aren't. 
if people wanted to get started with his body of work, which which plays are the ones you would you would recommend they start with? I have a I have a collection that is uh, the Misanthrope and Tartuffe by uh, with the translations by Richard Wilbur that I would say you could start with. Um, but if there is any like David Ives translation of a Moliere play running, you should go see that and then see if you're interested. What what's what's his deal, David Ives? I just explained that. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, a sp- go listen to I, this podcast. No, I spaced out. All right, you you can you should edit that out. <laughs> God, idiot. Okay, no, I got I got you want you want a mulligan on that one? Yeah, I got the Wilbur guy that you just mentioned, and then Ives mixed up. Oh, that's fair. Head, that's so fair. yeah, I'm sorry. Well, if you got anything mixed up on this podcast and you want to ask us about it, you can tweet at us at twitter.com slash overdue pod or send us a Facebook message at facebook.com slash overdue pod. You can also email those questions if you were so inclined to overdue pod at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on the internet. We have a website. It's at overduepodcast.com. Uh, up there on that website, we have Amazon links to the books that we have read, the books that we are reading, the books that we are going to read. And if you want to read along or if you, you know, hear us talk about a book and you think it sounds interesting, you can click those, buy them, and it gives us a little bit of money to pay for hosting and for booze and for, you know, whatever else we need to make the show happen. And yeah, believe me, both of those things belong on that list. We also have links to our iTunes store page and our RSS feed. You can use both of those to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, do leave a rating or a review. A rating leave, you know, takes like no time to do and a review takes only a little bit longer. Uh, we really appreciate those because they help us in the rankings and they also give us some idea of, you know, what we're doing right and what we are doing wrong. So, um, yeah, if if you have two minutes in your day and you like the show and you want to help us out that is probably the best like non-monetary way that you that you can do that is there anything else i don't think so is there all right i think that's it what did you what are you going to read next time all right next next week i'm going to read a book called tell the wolves i'm home by carol rifka brunt um it is about aids so it's gonna be a wild ride (laughs) I've never heard of that book. It was it was actually it was recommended to me by uh, one of my friends who started listening to the show only really recently. So oh great, um, well let's make so good yeah, on that. You know, Sounds cool. good to me. Yeah, she she recommended a bunch of books to me, and and um, I'm not going to say that my fountain has been running dry, but it like every time I read a new book, it's not always immediately obvious what book I should read next. So yeah, if you want to recommend books to us through at you know our email address or Twitter or Facebook, any of that stuff, uh, we we do really appreciate that. Um, yeah, in the in the meantime, we will we will see you next week and try to be happy. <laughs> <laughs>